0: Well, who'd have thought? Well, bless my soul Well, who'd have known? Well, who
1: indeed And who'd have guessed it come together on their own? It's so peculiar Well, wait and see A few, few days more There may be something there that wasn't there before You know, perhaps there's something there that wasn't there before
2: There may be something there that wasn't there before Hello and welcome to episode 1500 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined as usual by Sam Miller of ESPN and Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. But today it's a special episode and we are joined by two of our favorite people in the world, Grant Brisby of The Athletic. Hello, Grant. Hello. And someone who has not heard this intro in a while and is probably having some deja vu right now, Jeff Sullivan, who is now an analyst in baseball development for the Rays, unless you've been promoted recently because all of your bosses have been hired to run other teams.
3: I should have asked to do the intro because I think I still know it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it never goes away. Hello, everyone. Hi. Nice to have you back. It's been a while. So uh, every 500 or so episodes, we get together and we draft things we like about baseball, which uh, seems like something that we need right now because we've talked about a lot of things we don't like about baseball. And this is the opposite of that. So we did this on episode 500. We did it on 996. And now we're doing it on 1500. And these can be big things. They can be frivolous little silly things. Anything goes. Before we start, Jeff, uh, I won't waste everyone's time by asking you for details about your job because I know you can't tell us much, but what can you tell us, if anything, just about, I guess, how your life has been different over the past year? We were just talking about how you don't normally talk during these hours of the day anymore. See, I actually had a question for you, which was how much does it bother you that you did this in 996
3: instead of 1000? Uh,
2: (laughs) A little bit. I don't remember why we did that. I guess we had big plans for 997 through 1000 or something, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but yeah, bothers me a little bit. Yeah.
3: No, quality of life is great. Uh, I have, uh, I guess you could say when I was deliberating whether or not to to do this uh, a year ago, you know, it was about, well, do I stick with the thing that I know I'm good at and I'm comfortable at, or do I try to challenge myself? And when you're in your thirties, it's a little, one might be a little less open to challenges because you figure you might just want to kind of fade into the darkness and allow yourself (laughs) to pass and return to the earth. But it's been, it's been fun. I've learned a lot. (laughs) There's, I don't know, I, I can tell you, I don't remember how to write (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, like
3: i i the i don't know the last time that i wrote something that was more than like three paragraphs which uh, uh-huh. it's fun because it means you can you can do more but anyway no it's it's been it's been a lot of fun and i think that the thing i didn't necessarily expect i'm just going to go ahead and, and pull the cover off i don't remember if i ever said this before but for a while there by through through the end i didn't care about baseball much uh, when I wrote about it all the time and podcasted <laughs> it about it all the time. It was always fun to think about, but I had no real emotional connection. And, and it came back really fast and, and really strong. It helps that I work for uh, a really, really good baseball team that I should point out was already really, really good uh, with <laughs> <laughs> without anything that I did and will hopefully remain really, really good. But I uh, care about the Rays a lot. <laughs> and I wasn't uh-huh. necessarily expecting that although i guess in hindsight it makes all the sense in the world but i like watching the games you it's just you care about them so much more and if we ever have a season god forbid where we win like 55 games then maybe it won't feel quite like that but still it is nice to know that uh, one of those passions can be rekindled even when you are in let's say the the middle stage of, of your life which is the stage where everything kind of turns gray and brown
2: yeah And baseball development What What is that exactly Is that like player development Is that some other type of development Is that just a generic term
1: He puts the juice uh, on the balls He puts <laughs> the juice on the balls It's, it's
3: let's, let's call it It's R&D for people who don't have the skills to do R <laughs>
0: So it's just D Just, just giving them that D How
1: <sighs> well, is Valentine's Day <laughs> Yeah
0: The thing I
2: appreciate about you is that I think you have the best Twitter account of anyone who has been hired to work for a baseball team, which is like the lowest possible bar because, you know, Dave Cameron tweets twice a year when there's a job opening or something. So that's what you're surpassing. But you still do have entertaining tweets at times because you're still a person who has thoughts sometimes about non baseball things. And sometimes you see a silly sign and you can still tweet that. That's not uh, giving away proprietary information, it's just a silly tweet. I like that you still do
3: that. Yeah, but that's all just ego scratching, right? That's just trying to <laughs> be like, "Well, I had this platform and all these people knew me and I just want to remind myself that all these people still know me." That's all really all that is cuz <laughs> what I am now is a guy who's 3,000 miles away from all of the people that he knows. Like I yeah. probably know more people in St. Petersburg now than I do in Portland on account of the blogging that uh-huh. I do from home. So that's, I mean, what is any social media, right? We're all just trying to pat ourselves on the back and try to think of ourselves as more than we are. None of us are, but whatever. A hundred likes That's pretty sweet. Although I didn't have, I don't have any relatives who drew a funny map of North and South America. So Craig kind of won that one this week. Uh, Yeah. I've been yelling at my daughter,
0: like four days, do something funny. (laughs) (laughs) Disgrace.
2: go viral already why am yeah, i yeah she's like
0: acting in a school play you. it's it, yeah come on i could do that right <laughs> but
3: i mean that's why you have kids right they're supposed to be extensions of you and if they're not that's the problem though when they grow older and you're like oh shit you're an extension of me you're not gonna do anything <laughs> worthwhile for like 20 more years
0: yeah yeah no i got a late start that is for sure
3: <laughs> she's gonna start blogging about the giants <laughs> uh, no uh, no <laughs>
2: Hush! <laughs> all right should we draft i guess we can draft jeff uh, you haven't been on the podcast for a while you haven't podcasted at all so why don't you get the first pick it's not like we're actually competing for things here hopefully there's more than a very limited number of things that we all like about baseball and we won't overlap so we're each just gonna draft three things i think we'll see how it goes so you want to kick it off
3: i believe our last podcast competition was the minor league free agent draft and so oh, um, you you used to destroyed us
2: anything in the mail <laughs> you absolutely i mean you walked all for us It was a historic performance in my Here's, draft. Yeah. here's all Harold Ramirez. <laughs> I okay, so I'll I'll go
3: first. I will not trade my pick, although I guess I could. I have a lot of things written down. I could trade my first overall pick for like the second and third, but I guess I shouldn't do that. I'll go with wait, wait, one that wait, is. Wait. I want to enter real quick.
4: Have all you right. been? Do you have an, a list of article ideas that are not raise related? Like that? Do you still generate article ideas? Do you have hundreds of them now? Can you? Can I have some? Can
3: no, I, I have put, them. Whatever. I don't. Whatever I think about now is very much. It's no longer as creative, and it's more all the analysis stuff, right? So I just don't engage much with the more creative side of things because I don't have a reason to. And anything I think of for analytical purposes, I just put into Slack. Okay. So all right. Okay. All so
4: you said you stop. have a lot of picks here. It's not because oh, yeah. you've
3: been. It's not because you've been furiously imagining the uh,
4: the the Jeff Sullivan vertical that you're going to launch when you leave the race.
3: I don't want. That <laughs> Jeff Sullivan vertical would be so tall. <laughs> we have a tall front office. I will, I will point out. There's many, many tall people, including one person who, who I think knows that he looks exactly like Doug Fister, but is about 11 years younger. But when I was in the office and and interviewing, I looked out there and I was like, oh, I guess we made an acquisition. No, that's just another guy in baseball development. <laughs>
0: Wow, uh, Doug Fister. that's two Craig Calcaterra references. <laughs> for the listeners at home, one of the all-time great uh, Twitter typos was him tweeting out a story about Doug Pfister. Um, yes. Which still makes me laugh, but that's the context <laughs> for that hilarious joke. All right, continue. Some
2: of your insights that must help the Rays would be or could be blog posts, right? Because I assume that if you're doing uh, advanced scouting or something, you might realize something about a player. And in the past, that could have been a post. Or you might be looking at a league-wide trend or something and bringing that to the team's attention. And that could have been a post in the past. So maybe you're not doing like, I don't know, the baseball equivalent of LeBron James or whatever the weird posts that you used to do were. But some of this stuff must be similar. Yep. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Give me proceed. some secrets. Give me some secrets about some giants players. Come on.
1: Give me I got some article four, ideas.
3: I got four desperate baseball writers who are all trying to bark up the same tree cuz <laughs> there's nothing there's no currency that is more valuable than one simple article idea to help get you through the day and to yeah. Meg's great relief, I guess, but also burden you're not writing much because of, mm-hmm. you know, the editing. So yeah. you have more time to think of ideas, but probably by the time you might have creative windows of time, your brain has, has killed itself. And yeah, so it's, you probably don't get to think much.
1: It's mostly mush right now. I didn't sleep on Tuesday night. And what I've learned is that your 30s are not a time for all-nighters. Just don't do it. It's a bad idea. It'll make you feel bad.
0: This isn't a joke. It gets better in your 40s.
3: <laughs> well, it does, though, at some point, right? Because you end up not needing to sleep so much. I don't know how else to explain my grandparents. Yeah. yeah no, I'm not there yet. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: hey, Jeff, what are you picking?
3: First pick, this is, I think, appropriate for for the time of the year. Uh, my first pick, uh, one of the things I like about baseball the most, is the, the feeling that you get to feel about your team, not only all spring training, but really uh, a little extension of it that is, I think it's until your team loses its first regular season game. And I think the the cliche expression would be that, you know, hope spring is eternal and every you can always see the upside in, in everyone in, in spring because nothing's really happened yet. Even the worst teams in baseball have really talented baseball players who were who were on them. But I just like that even despite all of the math that's out there and, and even despite whatever impressions you might have of, oh, my team has been last place three years in a row or my team plays in Detroit, and uh, it's not very good, that you can still come into spring and it's just you don't want to even engage with whatever might be negative. Now, I'm saying, I know that there's there's sort of a joke that on the first day of spring, everything is super, super optimistic. And then everything goes down the drain as soon as there's the first injury. So like there's news out this morning, like Mitch Hanager had another surgery or, or Mike Clevenger is having surgery. And it's like, all right, well, so much for the fun of spring. Now baseball has started, but I really don't think it kicks in. Nothing, baseball doesn't settle into routine until I think your team has its first win and its first loss of the regular season. And until that first loss, everything is magical. Everything is possible. If you want to think of like, projection error bars. There is every team overlaps with like ninety five wins by some percentage. And I love this time of year for exactly that.
4: Oh my gosh, I'm I cannot tell you how shocked I am at how sentimental you have become. The, first, the, time, the first time the first thing we, I've ever heard. Right right the first time we did this draft, you drafted John Ulrude's lawsuit <laughs> with his neighbor over a tree. And now you're going with hope springing eternal in the baseball
3: breast what well, okay let me because of the background of writing about the mariners spring was all that we ever had yeah because it got bad fast man and that was always there so this is really a return to sentiment because when i would blog about the mariners things would be sentimental until the, the bad things would would accumulate and then it just got negative but this has always been there but no this is i mean i already drafted john Oliver's hedge Dispute, so I can't do that again. You've changed, yeah. man.
2: You've changed. <laughs> is there? Thing, can I his draft? Second thing is going to
4: be that there's no clock.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the grass <laughs> is so green.
3: That's, Crack the sun, of the
2: bat. Smell, the smell of the hot dogs. Hold yeah. on does
3: does John Olerud's property dispute have a son? Because
2: I could draft that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of my favorite manifestations of this is when teams and players make very optimistic predictions about themselves in the spring, which is something that I used to track and I used to do an annual article about that, just looking back at things that teams and players said about themselves in the spring and almost without fail, they would turn out to be way over optimistic. And as I was just looking back through some links I had saved to figure out what to draft today, I found this old link that I had from March 2015 about Jonathan Papelbon talking about the. 2015 Phillies and he said I feel like we're going to contend there's no Doubt about that I don't think anyone In this clubhouse especially the veterans feels Like we're not going to contend etc Etc they won 66 games They did not contend (laughs) actually 63 Games sorry and that's often What happens and I've also done articles about How Every clubhouse has a good clubhouse vibe in the spring, which is another thing that Jonathan Papelbon said about that Phillies team, that they're all getting along so great. It's a great group of guys. They're doing ping pong outside the ballpark, and everyone's getting along great. And then the season starts, and they start losing, and everyone hates each other, and Jonathan Papelbon starts strangling people. So, yes, I agree that I like this time of year. Who do you think is more over-optimistic players or fans of those teams. Hmm. So when the players say it, or when a GM or manager says it, then you never know if they really believe it or if they are just trying to get the fans excited. So it's hard to say if it's sincere. I think a lot of fans do get over-exuberant, but there are also some fans who have that sort of (laughs) self-defeating Mets-style attitude or like Cubs in past years where it's just like, oh, here we go again. What's going to go wrong this time? So I think it depends on the fan base. But overall, I'd say fans because when Fangraphs used to do those fans projections, they were always way over-optimistic as a group and people thought that the players would all be better than the players could possibly be.
4: I I will I think it's the opposite. I think that players mean it more. I think that players fundamentally respect each other's abilities. I think they look around and they see a bunch of good ball players, and that's how they see each other mainly as good ball players. And so when they show up and there's a bunch of good ball players, they're like, yeah, this is a good group. We got some ball players here. Fans, on the other hand, basically think of most players as busters. They think like almost all of them are going to let them down and they're flawed in some way. And There's some hope that you get when, you know, your team makes some acquisitions that or call up some young player that they're going to like shoot the moon. But for the most part, I think fans do tend to see a lot of holes in players games and uh, players tend to see a lot of their uh, a lot of their peers, guys they respect.
0: Was that a (laughs) hearts reference? I, it shoot, was yeah. shoot the mid. That, that's good. That's quality. Are you a hearts player? Oh yeah. All right. Yeah.
4: yeah.
2: Good. All right. All right. Great. You want to go me. next? You're our other guest.
0: I too would like to draft the uh, eternal vibrance of spring. baseball. No. Um. I'm gonna draft going on baseball reference and picking literally any team from 1904 just to study their names and the uh-huh. pictures. The pictures at top, but. Okay, so, so there are sixteen teams in baseball as of nineteen oh four. Just pick one, and I'll click on it. And I haven't I haven't gone the through them Boston yet. So. Dubs. Boston Doves. Boston Doves. Boston. Well, they're not the Doves, so uh, Wait, Boston they're not? is. They're the Bean Eaters. Oh,
4: okay.
0: <laughs> You're so, a bean eater. So the the Boston Bean Eaters. They oh gosh, you picked the worst one, <laughs> Sam. Uh, well, they, I, have Rip Can- the bean, they, have they have Rip Can. They have the best Can- team Hill. name though. That's true. That's true. They have uh, Rip Cannahill. Uh, they have uh, Kid O'Hara. They have Doc Marshall. They've got Kaiser Wilheim. Uh, <laughs> Duff Cooley. Uh, so this is the worst one. And then at the top, they've got the top 12 players. And it's all these black and white. Uh, you've got Fred Tenney with just this marvelous mustache. You have Jim Delahanty, who looks like he swallowed a bug. Uh, Tom Needham with a haircut that looks very institutional in all the wrong ways. Like I just, any team you pick any team is going to just be chock full of like, wow. And uh, here's the 1904 Cleveland naps. They have Billy lush. Uh, They have red Donahue. Uh, This one's boring too. Okay. But I I promise you that of the 16 teams, I have found some good ones. All right. Washington Senators. Come on, come on. Pop these new <laughs> pair of shoes. Uh, they have Rabbit Nil. They have Happy Townsend, Lou Drill, Bo- Boiler Yard Clark, Hunter Hill, Malachi Kittridge, uh, Davey Dunkle, uh, B- <laughs> BD Jacobson. And Not they win. <laughs> and then, yeah, right. Uh, and so I just I love just going to all these different pages and having a blast and looking at the pictures. It reminds me of the timelessness of baseball and, and how it is really we go back and it's the same sport and yet very much not. And I love it. Okay. 1904 Chicago White Sox has Nick Altrock. Yeah, classic. (laughs) Yeah, classic. Yeah, Yeah. no, I've mentioned him in articles before. He's, you know, he played with a Jigs Donahue. (laughs)
2: Yeah, in episode five hundred, you drafted players with dirty words in their name (laughs) on baseball reference. So (laughs) I saw
0: saw that in in (laughs) a.
2: Now it's okay. old timey names on Facebook. Yeah,
0: it, but it, A, I was a little like intimidated by the fact that there's a Wikipedia page for effectively wild podcasts. Like, I yes, I didn't know that.
2: You are saying right now will be preserved for posterity.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like, I, you, you, you uh, sent that to me in a DM, and I thought you sent me links to the podcast. And I was like, buddy, if you expect me to go back and listen to that, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And then I looked at the list. And I was like, wait a second. And I clicked through. And there's someone actually paying attention, which is terrifying. <laughs> but I saw that and I still went through because I think just going to 1904. And then when he gets like 1910, it's not as funny. For some reason, mm-hmm. like it, it degrades over time. Uh, but 1904
4: is... Can I interrupt with a name? in Right halfway between 1904 and 1907 is actually Please. the first year of the Boston Doves under their new moniker. And uh, they had a player named... Uh, this is not a funny name exactly, <laughs> but it, I think it is. Big Jeff Pfeffer... Jeff Pfeffer. <laughs> so his name is Big Jeff Pfeffer, which I think is great. Jeff Pfeffer. Okay. J-E-F-F-P-F-E-F-F-E-R. Jeff Pfeffer. <laughs> so many Fs. <laughs> All right. Uh, but here's the great thing about Big Jeff Pfeffer. <laughs> Not Five, actually six. named Jeff. Not what? actually named Jeff. His nickname was he was known as Big Jeff Pfeffer, but his name was Francis. He was named Big Jeff Effer because he was the older brother of Jeff Pfeffer. They named <laughs> He got the wait. nickname after the brother was born. They decided
2: what to name him later. Wait, but Jeff Pfeffer was named Dude, just oh, Edward. No. Wait, wait Big wait. Jeff is two inches shorter than Jeff. Regular That's Jeff. True.
4: Yeah, it's true that <laughs> Jeff, Jeff
2: original Jeff Pfeffer... <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Wait, named to be Ed. clear, right. actual Jeff Pfeffer, right? The so. Jeff
3: Pfeffer is Francis Xavier Pfeffer. Jeff Pfeffer is Edward Joseph Pfeffer. There's no Jeff.
0: There's, There's no, no Jeff.
3: Jeffs for two Jeffs.
0: Uh, can mm-hmm. I just chime in? Uh, have you all considered Pfeff Jeffer? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's like uh, a like a big John, little John. Is it like a ironic, like a sarcastic kind of thing? Like we call him Big Jeff because he's actually the smaller Jeff by two like inches and
1: twenty five pounds. I don't know.
2: Big Big <laughs> Beth Jeffer.
4: Well, I mean, Big <laughs> Jeff Effer was the bigger Jeff Effer. For a while, I mean, yeah. given that there were no Jeff Effers, but I mean, if you assume they were both <laughs> actually Jeff Effers, then he was the bigger one up, you know, up until probably.
3: But let's also point out that Big Jeff Effer, Big Jeff Effer, was two inches shorter and twenty-five pounds lighter than Jeff Effer.
2: That's what I just said. Oh, that's what we're talking about. But <laughs> I wasn't paying attention when they were growing. I mean, <laughs> Boy, little Jeff Sullivan. Rusty. I'm
3: guessing that that wasn't the case
4: in 1888 when Big Jeff was. Big Jeff Effer was was six, and little Jeff Effer was three. I mean, I po- know, probably yeah. this nickname held for a long time. A they were both time. pretty big
2: by the standards of the day. So I no don't I'm
4: think he thinking. got the nickname when they were grown. I don't think we should be focusing on how big they were. <laughs> this, this, this hold up. on.
1: Those... No, let me say a thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh,
1: now it's not worth it. <laughs> what if feffer is a verb? <laughs> Wait. like a big Jeff. Oh yeah. <laughs> to, fef,
4: to Feffer feffest like or that he, he fats he Jeffs
1: how <laughs> oh much Jeff. Yeah.
4: Jeff would have Jeff Feff fef, if and Jeff Feff could fat fef Jeff. Yeah, this uh,
1: is what I'm saying.
2: This is why podcasts are not normally five people, I guess. <laughs>
0: uh oh, I, I will say real quick that while we're talking about heights and, and and stuff like this that's also one of the reasons I wanted to draft this and I forgot about it is that every picture looks like they have scurvy every <laughs> every baseball player from 1904 has rickets and scurvy and dropsy and yep. you know the mumps and stuff so that's also a reason to <laughs> right yeah, did dysentery you, for sure
4: did, you know I heard recently that 98.6 degrees the uh, temperature that everybody knows is like humans resting temperature that they have now found that's not actually true. That yeah. we're actually like more state, like, like our resting temperature, and resting is the wrong word, but like our, our healthy temperature is actually like somewhere in the 97s. Yeah. But 98.6 came because when they did this huge survey of people, they did it like 100 years ago when half the population did have scurvy or rickets. <laughs> and so they were just swooping in all these sick people and thinking that that was the normal state of human existence. And Mm -hmm. so for 100 years, we've had thermometers that had temperatures that were based on kind of low-grade illness, in fact.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I always wonder about the old-timey names is whether 100 years from now, if everyone's still alive and baseball still exists, whether today's names will sound equally archaic and quaint, or whether that was just a magical little period there of a, a couple decades where everyone had consumption and strange names. Yeah, Pick a team. Look at the roster. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: if our vaccination rate is any indication we might just have a return to all sorts of things
2: also possible all right Meg you want to go
1: I do want to go and I was so nervous that Grant would take mine <laughs> I am drafting <laughs> I am drafting baseball scandals that either involve horniness or are characterized <laughs> by horny language
0: hey wait 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 <laughs> why <laughs> I don't know, man. I
1: don't know. (laughs) I don't know, man. Just felt right about my brand. Um, All right, go on. I I don't know that much has brought me greater joy in the last year than like the Grand Junction Chubs and the gas station (laughs) Dick Pills and the banging scheme. You guys, there's been so much nonsense and so much garbage, and I can't enjoy this to my full capacity on Twitter because men are not to be trusted with the the seeming invitation to remark on horned content. They can't be trusted. You all, You all cannot be trusted. Men on Twitter cannot be trusted especially, but it brings me joy in a way that I – Didn't know I was capable of feeling about twelve year old humor as a thirty-three year old woman. And so I say, bang on, bang away, but ask questions before you bang. (laughs) (laughs) There
2: are a lot of baseball terms that are unintentionally dirty, like I don't like power shagging comes to mind. Sure, yeah. There are others. But yes, when you can couple the scandal with the unintentionally horny sounding name, it does kind of undercut the seriousness of the whole thing.
1: Now, there are there are potential drawbacks to this, because, for instance, my mother, who is, you know, mom enjoys going to baseball games with me, but she is not a baseball fan. And she watched Ken Burns baseball and learned of Merkel's boner. And that's an innocuous phrase for some, but it radically changes when you are sitting at a baseball game in a public place with your mother, and there is an error of some sort, and she says, is that a boner? (laughs) Changes. (laughs) Everything changes after that. Your life is altered. The landscape of language is different. So you got to be careful, but also... We should just bang all the
0: time. I mean, you've got—that's uh, the same team. You got Merkel's boner and Snodgrass's muff. I've uh, always been fascinated that that's the same team. You've got uh, Merkel's boner and Snodgrass's muff, and you've you re- got to keep them away from each other.
1: Your reaction here is why I was worried you'd be the person to scoop this pick.
0: No, I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm a little distracted because I was reading uh, uh, the scouting report on Reese McGuire. It says he can really crank it. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit that out, right, Ben? You, you,
2: <laughs> I, I could, but I I won't. Yeah. Yeah.
1: My
0: uh,
4: my fourth uh, my fourth pick in this draft, if we had gone to four rounds, was actually going to be uh, Merkel's boner related. I was going to pick the uh, final game of that season. I did not realize that Merkel's boner actually happened three weeks before the end of the season, and uh, the final game of the season was even more interesting in my opinion. Uh, But I didn't pick that. But I have always wondered, or not really wondered, but I've kind of half planned to do a survey of all the unintentional dirty words across sports to see which sport is unintentionally the dirtiest. And I can't, I don't think I want to do it until, I don't ever want to do it. So probably never will do it. But I just, I can't, it's not an article that I want to picture people reading and associating Why? with me. And so <laughs> no. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, I would like to get there, but I guess what I need is to be more, you know, self actualized as a human. Uh, but in the meantime, I do think that is an underrated, unintentionally dirty word that we all say many times throughout the season without dying of laughter is when we refer to the second spot in the batting lineup as the two hole.
1: <laughs> see, see for me, it's it's when we talk about consummating trades, because that sounds like the way that Jane Austen would describe a banging scheme. Let's yeah. put it that way.
4: Yeah. Only yeah. two, only two things you consummate in the yeah.
3: yeah, one of the things I've learned actually in this side of the game is that is how it works. <laughs>
1: Makes me think about Jerry DePoto very differently. I
3: mean, every team has different hotel rooms at the winter meetings for a reason.
0: Uh, Some confirmation
1: put Jerry in the hospital. That's (laughs) troubling. Hi guys.
0: <laughs> I could confirm I've did a little research. Uh, there have been eight plate appearances where Albert Pujols batted in the two-hole. Oh <laughs> no. So six games with Pujols in the two two hole. Yeah, Sorry. it's not
4: yeah. just that it's it's not just the phrase two hole, but it's that someone's in the two hole. <laughs> 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 I never want to do this article. I'm
1: I... scared. I'm really happy that we got to do this because, like I said, I normally I have to, you know, I have to save my my dick jokes for my family because I can't do it on Twitter. So it's nice to get to share this moment with my friends.
2: I once did an article about old timey sheet music and songs that was about baseball, but also about sex, and so they would use baseball language to kind of talk about sex in songs like "I Can't Get to First Base with You," which has a smiling Lou <laughs> Gehrig on the cover. Or if you can't make a hit in a ball game you can't make a hit with me and it's all very suggestive and this is going back a long way so there's a long legacy of this sort of thing (laughs) Sam you're up all
4: right I'm gonna pick Willie Mays house party the thing about Willie Mays is uh well there's a lot of things about Willie Mays and one of the things about Willie Mays is that he had a real soft spot for children and so when he goes to I'm gonna get it's gonna get a little bit like less fun for a minute when he goes to San Francisco when the Giants moved to San Francisco probably some people know this I don't know if it's well known but uh, he went to go buy a house and they basically wouldn't sell him the house because he, he was African American and it became kind of a big thing in San Francisco for a little while because Willie Mays was you know being kept out of neighborhoods in 1957 and this was not secretly done or anything it was pretty openly done. The city was trying to find him other houses in neighborhoods that wouldn't protest. And this was written about in the newspaper. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle at the time. Willie Mays ran into the color barrier. He and his wife were turned down in their attempt to buy a home because they are black. Mays, the say-hey kid of baseball, is at 27, one of the game's all-time greats, both at bat and in the field. After looking at several houses, Mays offered $37,500 for a new home at 174 Miraloma Drive. It was the price the owner was asking, but after several days of waiting, Mays was turned down. The house is still for sale at the same price, but not to Mays. The owner of the house said that he was willing to sell to Mays, but that neighbors put such great pressure on him that he finally decided not to accept the baseball star's offer. Mays said that he was deeply disappointed. His wife was more bitter. Down in Alabama, where we came from, she said, you know your place, and that's something at least, but up here, it's all a lot of camouflage. They grin in your face and then deceive you. And, you know, San Francisco had a kind of a weird relationship with Willie Mays because he was incredible. He was awesome. He was a perfect franchise superstar. And and a lot of times, they were real jerks to him. And so Willie Mays spent a lot of his career with a reputation for being fairly suspicious of of grownups for good reason, of the people around him, of people who were trying to get him to do things or who were, uh, you know, writing about him or talking about him. And alongside this, there's this whole parallel track where he's also interacting with the world of children. So in the uh, biography Willie Mays, The Life, the Legend by James Hirsch, there's a whole section in the index, Kindness Toward Children by Willie Mays. And there are like 30 different sections in the book that this points back to. There are more... There are more entries for kindness toward children by Willie Mays than legacy and place in baseball history of Willie Mays or iconic and legendary status of Willie Mays. There's a whole other section in the index for children's causes and charitable work. He really got along very well with children. And there are two stories I think that are the best Willie Mays kindness stories, but the the very best one. I'm going to read the second one, too, eventually. But the very best one is when he so he finally, you know, he gets a house. It's it's a very dark period in his relationship with the city. He never really feels at home for those first few years. And then after six years, he he does finally feel like he's settled down. He's he's a San Franciscan. He feels somewhat more accepted by the city. And so he goes and he buys another house. And this time he has no problem. He buys the house. He, he refurbishes it and everything like that. And so this is what happened. Before he moved in on December 20th, his mailbox was stuffed with letters. Dear Willie, one wrote, I represent the neighborhood kids, a bunch of boys on Ninth Avenue. We welcome you to our neighborhood and hope you enjoy it, David. And there are a whole bunch of these. Once settled, Mays decided to have a housewarming for the kids. And he got a list of names from the Forest Hill Improvement Association. One mother dropped off nine children, all hers. Also attending was nine-year-old Amy Irving a future actress. Mays gave each child an autographed picture and a record, and he served chips, punch, ice cream, and a cake decorated like a baseball diamond with toy players at the top. At one point, the host had to run out and buy more ice cream. Kids from outside the neighborhood heard that this was going on, and they would come, and they would like look inside, and he'd go out, and he'd invite them in. And eventually, this housewarming party with just kids that was supposed to be 30 ended up with more than 100 kids. There's all these pictures of Willie Mays hosting them. And uh, in his brand new home, and so even that, even that nice thing that he did for children, adults could be cynical about. There were people who were writing that he was only doing that as a as a as a contract ploy that he was trying to raise his visibility and popularity right before his contract, which I think goes to the point that Willie Mays had had identified, which is that adults were jerks and they all <laughs> wanted something from him and they were all you know distrustful of him. But he had no suspicion of children, and it was a beautiful thing, wonderful thing. The other best story of Willie Mays and the kid was when some kid uh knocked on his door and said he needed a ride to the ball game and so Willie Mays drove him to the ball game and and then later that day he uh, he said well i 'll pick you up too and take you home and So After the game, he goes to look for the kid and The kid had told a bunch of uh, of his friends that Willie Mays had driven him to the ball game and they didn't believe him, and so the kid brought a whole bunch of other kids, and they all crowded into Willie Willie Mays' Cadillac, and he drove them all home. At one point, when they were on the way to the game, the kid realized he had forgotten his lunch, so Willie Mays drove the kid back to his house and <laughs> got his lunch from his mother. So I don't know; it's just uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing about about Willie Mays' career, and one of those stories that of a player being like accessible and unguarded and human that feels impossible
2: today. I could see Mike Trout driving kids around. I would not be surprised. <laughs> I could
4: see Mike Trout wanting to, but it just doesn't feel like we have that world anymore. Like there, you don't. There's not that interaction between famous people and and real people. There's a a, a real kind of like sense that the public is dangerous, maybe, and mm-hmm. so it's hard to imagine it happening in anything other than like a James Corden's prearranged <laughs> sketch. You know?
2: Yeah. He does go back to Millville and hang out with his high school baseball kids there, but that's probably a little different.
0: Did you get this idea because you've been to a kid party at my house uh, in which I hired a woman to play Elsa from the movie Frozen? Was that your inspiration for this?
4: <laughs> I, I do remember that party.
0: Yeah, it was wild, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Crazy, just like Willie Mays, just like Willie Mays. What
3: <laughs> records was Willie Mays passing out to the children, because you said that, right? It was
0: like ice cream and records. I did say that.
3: I don't. I don't know.
4: I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> what year are we talking about?
4: Sixty-three, I believe.
0: That's like some Herman's Hermits or something. Yeah. Was Ray Stevens alive yet? <laughs> the streak.
2: <laughs> I don't know anything else. That's old. I'm gonna go. So earlier this week, I was talking to Grant and I was telling him uh, what we had drafted previously. And I joked that John Bowker is still on the board, that Grant could still draft John Bowker if he wanted to, because he loves John Bowker. I'm not actually going to draft John Bowker, but that reminded me that I love quadruple A players and the concept of quadruple A players. So that is what I'm drafting here. And I love them because... A, I like thinking that there is such a significant gap between AAA and the majors that the majors is so special and so much harder that there are actually guys who can just crush in AAA and are just helpless in the majors because they can't make the adjustment or they have a slider speed bat or whatever it is. There's like some slight little bit better that big league pitchers are than AAA pitchers. That is just the end for them. They cannot compensate. So I like that, but I also like the idea that this doesn't exist at all and that there's no such thing as a quadruple-A player because that's kind of been a debate going back decades. Does this actually exist or is this just something that we imagine and guys get stuck with that label because maybe they struggle in a small sample or a scout thinks that they can't succeed, but it's not actually true. And I'm sure everyone has a a favorite quadruple A player from the past that you can think of. Like, I don't know... uh Jack Cust would be a good triple A player, quadruple player, like Roberto Pettigini, who has like a yes. thousand OPS in AAA and like a 700 OPS in the majors. And sometimes these guys do get a shot and they actually do pretty well. Like I I used to love Russell Brannion. Maybe he's too good to qualify. I'm not sure, but I always believed he was on the verge of being the best player in baseball, or, you know, Dan Johnson or Gosh, I mean, there's so many. You probably all have some in your mind. Brandon oh, yeah. Allen. They are Phillips.
1: Jeff and yeah. I watched the 2010 Mariner, so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think those are a bunch of AAA players. Oh, I <laughs> Kiwa Ka... ka,
0: uh, ka I, <laughs> you I should have gotten a different to example. It.
2: Yeah. Calvin Hickory. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, I, I mean, I guess the original is Ken Phelps, right? The Ken Phelps All-Stars. This is what Bill James called them. But... I don't know if this concept really exists anymore because like the sort of stats that Jeff can go look up. Maybe you can actually tell if a guy is good or not before he gets to the big leagues and you can look at the pitch level and look by velocity and see does he have trouble hitting velocity and you can project with some accuracy whether he actually could be a big leaguer. But I really like just the mystique of the quad A player and I, I hope that they don't go away. Rubio Durazo. There's another one.
0: Yeah, I I will add to that where I like the uncertainty of where you've got the NPB, which is sort of like a 5A, you know, it's it's like just a a tier above AAA, maybe a tier below the majors. So there's that uncertainty there. If you succeed in Japan, can you succeed in the majors? And a lot of people do. A lot of people don't. Uh, And then there's like Korean baseball under that. So the Giants have Darren Ruff in spring training, and he was a, a monster in Korea. Is that going to translate? I don't know. You know, the Brewers just gave a lot of money to Josh Lindblom. Is that smart? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I love that uncertainty too. So, uh, I I am on board with Ben's pick. I I uh, great A, good job.
2: <laughs> okay. And I appreciate also that Russell Carlton, our pal who recently returned to Baseball Prospectus after a stint with the Mets, he has changed his Twitter bio to call himself a quad A sabermetrician, which I think <laughs> is brilliant because he is uh, he's consulted for a couple of big league teams, but has not stayed on full time. So he has kind of dipped his toe in that world, but keeps coming back to writing, which we are all somewhat happy about to have him yes. writing again. But that's uh, very self-deprecating of him. And uh, I thought that was fun.
4: One of the uh, one of the the things about the quad A concept too is how it ropes in a bunch of players who are actually quite a bit better than quad A, but who somehow get remembered in that in that. And so I'm just going to point out that Rubio Durazo, who you said, and then other people nodded in agreement, was quite good as a major league hitter. He had a career mm-hmm. OPS plus that was the same as. Kevin Euclid's career OPS plus and Kirk Gibson's career OPS plus, for instance, and Nolan Arenado's career OPS plus. And uh, in seven years as a major leaguer, he, you know, he had basically six where he was a clearly above average hitter. And in his second to last season, he got MVP votes. So not really a quad hitter at all. But once you introduce the concept, then you've got to fill that bucket with with examples. And
2: so it becomes a sort of a (laughs) curse. Right. Sometimes they get that reputation and it's undeserved. And then you get like Jack Cust, who finally gets a shot with Oakland. It's usually Oakland or Tampa Bay often, I guess, <laughs> gives these guys a shot. And uh, there he was at age 28, having a really good year out of nowhere and showed that he could do that. So yeah. And then there are other guys who never get that shot and maybe they would have succeeded if they had gotten it. But
3: yeah. In 2006, Jack Cust was 27. He played the, the season in, in Portland, Oregon, actually. And he, he batted 293 with a 467 OBP and a 549 slugging percentage. That was not actually the highest OPS in the PCL. That belonged to Edgar Gonzalez, who, uh, uh-huh. okay. But Jack Cust that year had 143 walks. 143 walks in the PCL. Second place had 78. That
0: was Chris Carter. <laughs> Can I just chime in that I, uh, I think about three years ago, I saw someone in a Jack Cust jersey oh. using a payphone. Like That's that is
1: old-fashioned <laughs> sentence. That
0: is like just like there's like a, a mental bingo that that ticks off that I just love that it, I just was driving by and it was a Jack Cuss jersey using a payphone. And that appeals to me. I'm the only mm-hmm. like the, y'all are the only people in the universe, maybe some listeners who can appreciate that. But I saw it, so yeah.
1: Did you get in a car accident? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sorry,
0: officer. However,
1: (laughs) but did you see? Did you see him on the phone? Yeah, like that.
3: Calvin Pickering (laughs) didn't? Didn't we say Calvin Pickering like three minutes ago? Maybe Sam Horn. Okay, (laughs) Jeff, you're up again. So I feel like what Grant is describing is that he actually just saw Jay Gibbons. But he was in disguise.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna retweet. I tweeted about it in 2014. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna retweet it right now during the podcast. He has receipts. Yeah,
3: that's weird. My brother just sent me a text about Calvin Pickering about four days ago. He, uh, he became a coach. Oh, all right. He, uh, good for him. He uh, as a coach, he was no longer at his playing weight. So I will say with uh, the first pick of the second round. I don't know a better way to put this. I'll say what uh, one of the things I really like about baseball is the unsolvability of it. Mm -hmm. That we've, you know, the sabermetrics, Ben has written enough about the history of sabermetrics. And we've all, in our own ways, been analyzing the game for a while. And all the teams have been analyzing the game for a while. And I mean, I've, I've been part of a team now for almost a full calendar year. And I have learned a lot. And we've had some significant breakthroughs over the course of the past year. But nevertheless, you still can't, You can't predict baseball. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. That's something I picked up on uh, behind the curtain. But just for all of of the work that goes into trying to figure it out and, and all the new tech and all the different ways that we're trying to break it down, whether that's mechanics, you wrote a whole book about, you know, player development and guys changing their swings or picking up new pitches or just using cameras to alter their pitches there is still there is no you, you think even on on the public side projections haven't really gotten that much better over the 10 or 15 years that they've existed
2: mm-hmm.
3: I, I don't know how you best want to test that and not all the same projection systems have existed over the course of that time whatever but the the way that I try to think of it is like you're you're building it's they're like if you want to Think of it on the team level. There's like 30 groups of people building sandcastles on the beach. And you can always just like dig your bucket into the sand and add another tower or wall or just bulk to your sandcastle. So you can still have you can have the biggest sandcastle on the beach, but you look down then there's always more sand to put in your bucket. And Did you I turn guess- into
2: Scott Morris over the last year? <laughs> no, this one makes sense.
3: There, I mean, at a certain point, I guess a beach is uh, no beach is infinite. Nothing is infinite. The universe is infinite, I guess, but you can eventually get to the end of the sand. But the, there is effectively an infinite amount of sand in the beach, so you can learn something concrete about the game of baseball that open that just kind of turns a light on in the corner. But now I'm mixing metaphors or expressions so i can see how this happens to him i think he he probably goes in with like a note card with like two bullet points and he realizes oh that only took me 20 seconds i got to fill like another 20 minutes of talking the point is that you can always make progress but there's always more progress to make i'm done pick second
0: (laughs) okay
2: yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But uh, I'm sure you know more than we do. But there's still probably plenty you don't know. Oh, we All solved right. it. I didn't say that. Oh, we didn't okay. solve it. <laughs> okay. Wait was, right. was,
4: was, wait, was the point that you can always make progress, but, the, but there's always more progress to make? Or was the point that you can always feel like you're making progress, but you don't actually make any progress? Because it did sort of sound like the latter.
3: No, because you do. There is real progress there like is real the sand, progress I'm that is being the made
4: and i'm imagining the sand just immediately just like pouring down the sides of the castle as sand no so no I it's guess. kind of wet it's and well-structured sand then i'm also imagining the infinite nature of the sand that you described where like you might get i mean if you're going if it is an infinite journey from here to there it doesn't matter how many steps you take toward there you are still as far away from the end and so aren't you saying that there's no progress being made and it's all an illusion
3: well i think that what i said in there is that the beach is not completely infinite there is progress it's just that the progress is relatively incremental given the just the the elements of of the the things in the game that you can't predict the weather that's just a pitcher throws the pitch a little wrong for no rhyme or reason it's just you know the whole luck element there's no getting around it there's never going to be any solving of it so as much as we can actually learn about the game there's still always going to be pretty considerable error bars around any measurement that you're trying to predict, which I, I quite enjoy. It just never, it never, it's another way of saying that it never gets dull to try to figure it out because there's, I feel like there's just enough, there are just enough nuggets of gold that you can kind of sift out. This is all over the place now, but there's kind of a sandy it's theme. In a river.
1: I keep okay. thinking about I that moment those, in, the, yeah. in the in the uh, in the bad one of the bad Star Wars prequels where Anakin talks about not leaking sand because it gets everywhere.
2: That, <laughs> gets everywhere. <laughs> that, was,
1: that was mostly for I'm, you, Ben. I love <laughs> when I'm walking
4: down the beach and I stumble upon some gold. <laughs> <laughs>
3: some gold nuggets <laughs>
4: in the sand?
3: You can build <laughs> sand castles on the river shore. There's still <laughs> sand sometimes. Like a <laughs> delta. What are we doing here? You can have uh, rivers pour down from mountains where there is gold into oceans where there is not gold, except the gold that has been deposited there from the mountains. Also, there's probably gold. De- I'm not a... There's gold. There's gold everywhere.
2: Ships Grant, crash. S- save us, Grant. <laughs> Grant. <laughs>
3: oh. You ever see those old people with, with the metal detectors? They're there for the yeah, reason. They're looking
1: they for, don't sleep.
4: for lost jewelry, right?
3: Which has gold sometimes.
4: Would you describe a – is it a nugget? All right.
0: Is it a doubloon? (laughs) Draft. Uh, Are you drafting doubloons? So I am uh, assuming that our pace is not going to allow us to draft three. So I'm going to pick – one that is uh, probably going to be a quick one because I don't think I have a ton to say about it.
1: Oh my God, just do it.
0: <laughs> and the thing about this is that it came to me when I was looking through a box of baseball. No, okay. Uh, I'm going to draft that Paul Giamatti is the son of a oh. Bartlett Giamatti. Yeah. And I just I just love that. Every,
1: Every time,
0: time I watch Paul Giamatti in a movie, I just love thinking like, that guy's dad banned Pete Rose. It's just, It's fascinating to me. Uh, Paul Giamatti, who's one of the great character actors of his generation, and I just love that his dad was the commissioner of baseball. And while getting this idea, I looked up what he's been doing lately, and I didn't know A, that they made The Catcher Was a Spy into a movie, and B, that it starred Paul Rudd. Like, I, this someone should email me. Like, I get so many dumb PR emails. Someone should be like, A... Watch The Catcher Was a Spy, this major movie with Paul Rudd that you might be interested in. Yeah, and in that movie is the son of A. Bartlett Giamatti.
2: All right. Hmm.
3: Who makes a less convincing baseball player as an actor, Paul Rudd or Paul Giamatti?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh. I if Paul Rudd were a, a baseball player, we'd have to redo all our aging curve research. That's
2: right? true. Oh, that's a good point. That yeah. is a good point. <laughs> all right, Meg? Meg?
1: Oh, crap. Okay, I have it. No, it's I'm ready. I want to draft goof-based walk-offs. Ah, and okay. so to give an example of this, you may recall in 2018 when the Astros won a game against the Padres because
0: mm. Eric
1: Hosmer failed to catch an infield pop-up. Uh, and it allowed it allowed someone to score. It allowed someone to score, and the Astros won. And it was well, it was funny for a, a number of reasons, not the least of which is that not long before that, um, one Dave Cameron had gone to work for the Padres, so that was funny for reasons that are mostly specific to the people on this podcast. But I like goof based walk ups because one, they're objectively hilarious, so that's that's a, that's one thing, and also because I always feel I always feel really bad for the pitcher in a walk-off situation cuz you know like uh often he has to time when he goes to his own dugout to allow a guy to cross especially if it's a you know if it's a walk-off home run it's like do I am I going to run into the hitter on the base path and it's very tricky and I don't like it and I feel bad for him we have all this attention we see this sad lurking figure and I'm really comfortable making fun of Eric Hosmer but mostly it just shifts the emotional burden in a in a surprising way and I quite enjoy that so i am drafting goof based walk-offs
4: if i'm not mistaken i believe that that alex bregman pop-up had the lowest hit probability of any batted ball in baseball (laughs) that year and yeah i was gonna do an article on the least likely batted balls the least likely hits or something like that and the first one was a hit (laughs)
0: <laughs> and don't forget that Bregman later that year, I think oh. like a month later, like yeah. Jonathan My Favorite Luke Ray, play in history. Yeah, like a drop third strike and yeah. Jonathan Luke Ray threw a ball at yes. his head. Yes. I mean, beautiful, beautiful moment in baseball history. Just yes. banged off his head. Bang. Yes.
1: Why do the Astros have to be involved with these? Now they're all tainted. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
2: I think
4: we, I think we may have talked at one point about how Alex Bregman's win probability added that year was the highest in baseball. And those two plays accounted a, for like, a lot of it. Yeah, like 20% of it or something.
1: Yeah. Like yeah, so I like I like it. I like when baseball affords us an opportunity to sort of shift our emotional expectations when it surprises us like that. And I always feel so bad for the pitchers. And I still feel bad for them because they're still mad when their team loses, but it's less about them and more about the goof. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> I enjoy right, good tip. goof.
4: Goof. All right. So I'm gonna take Bo Jackson's nineteen ninety score. Number 697, which is, I don't know. I don't know if any. Is anybody in the sweet spot where that card is a big part of your life and memory? Anybody?
0: I literally had it in my hand an hour ago while looking for ideas for this. Dude. I, I swear <laughs> to goodness. I had it. I have in my hand right now a Bart Giamatti card. And that's I remember what that I card. That's
4: the score. That was a 1990 score too, right?
0: Uh, 90 Donruss. 90, 90 Donruss. Donruss. But okay. I, while going through that, I was like, ooh. The Bo Jackson card's pretty cool. So that's uh, bizarre.
4: That yeah, is bizarre. All right, so this Bo Jackson card, everybody remembers the Ken Griffey Jr. 89 Upper Deck as the iconic card of, of that era, of the Junk Wax era. But, you know, like a, a big part of what made the Griffey card such a big deal is that Griffey was really good for a long time, and so that card slowly rose in value until it became, you know, extremely valuable and, and a big, you know, a, a huge card that we all sought but the bo jackson card i think at the time was an even bigger phenomenon because before the bo jackson card like this was 1990 and there were only four, five, five sets of cards. And there were no such thing as inserts or anything like that. And so there were valuable baseball cards that you were aware of, but there there were basically only two ways that cards could get valuable. One was that, you know, you could get a rookie card and then that player could become really good over 10 years, but that took a long time. Or you could have an old card, but that took an even longer time. So there was no real chance that you were going to like open a pack of cards in 1990 and discover a valuable card. They didn't, really exist when you were opening them. They only maybe became valuable in time. And then this Bo Jackson card comes out. And so this card is a picture that was taken from a Nike poster. He's wearing shoulder pads and he's holding a bat behind his neck. And that's it. It's like shot from like the waist up and he's uh, shirtless and he's just there muscular and, and being Bo And his name isn't on it. It's just black and white. There's nothing but the picture and the score logo. And on the back, all it is is the letters B and O in giant letters. And that's it. That's the whole card. And so this card was like an immediate phenomenon when it came out. And so there are a few data points for how big it was that I can tell you. So card shops at the time were actually limiting how many packs of card of score you could buy because they didn't <laughs> want people coming in and like hoarding all the scores to try to get the Bo Jackson. And so you could only buy like you know ten packs a day or whatever in card shops. There were all these urban legends would develop that kids had heard about how rare the card was, how it, it was actually very rare. That there were rumors that score had not printed uh as many of it uh, there were rumors that nike had filed a lawsuit because they were using the image and so they had to shut down production so we we had been kind of we were believing that it was a rarer card than it was there were counterfeiters that were making counterfeit versions of this card and so these counterfeit schemes became na- uh, national news. The AP was writing about him. They were making these cheap knockoffs and sometimes card shops were even selling the knockoffs as knockoffs. And the craziest story about the Bo Jackson card was that Bob Angle, who was a major league umpire at the time, Bob Angle had been an umpire for 25 years. And I've read accounts that from, from other umpires that he probably was on, on in line to make the hall of fame someday as an umpire. And he got arrested in April of 1990, for stealing boxes of score from Target because he was trying to get that Bo Jackson 697. And he pleaded no contest to it and got probation and, and his career was over. And he never made the Hall of Fame. So that Bo Jackson card kind of kept a, an umpire out of out of the Hall of Fame. So so this card was huge. We all wanted it. We put it in the case. And of course, nowadays, it's, it's not really worth anything. Right, it's like all the cards from that era, it's it's hardly worth anything. You could probably get it for for very cheap. But like do you want to guess? Anybody want to guess how much it was at its peak?
0: $3,000.
4: Okay, any other guesses? $3,001.
0: There is someone at my door and my dog is going nuts. So I will take this <laughs> moment to briefly say $75.
4: Okay. A- any other guesses? No. All right. $12. Oh no. <laughs> that was the peak. This was, this was what it took to create a phenomenon in 1990 baseball cards. It peaked at $12. When Bob Engel got arrested for stealing uh, the boxes from Target, it was $8. When they were doing the counterfeiting, I believe it was, oh no, I think Bob Engel stole maybe when it was four and the counterfeiting was when it was eight, but like basically $10. So imagine going to the trouble of counterfeiting a whole bunch of $10 bills that you can only get rid of in highly intimate face-to-face interactions with a very small niche community of collectors of $10 (laughs) bills. Like That's how big this card was, that people were trying to counterfeit that somehow. Hmm. Anyway, to me, that is... Bo Jackson's career in a nutshell.
2: If you adjust for inflation, $12 in 1990 is $24 now. So it's yes. really twice as valuable. Okay, It's still a, funny. a resonant image because Kyler Murray did the same pose and recreated that card just oh. like a little over a year ago. So yeah, people still remember it. I still remember it. So that's worth something.
4: I would like to give credit to the Sabre Baseball Card blog, which has a very good post about this card by Matthew Prigg. And in his words, this was the definitive card of the Junk Wax era, and I agree with him. I think it is the definitive card of the Junk Wax era.
0: I recently just – my mom has been dropping off boxes of baseball cards for the last, I don't know, five years and just saying, here, you take this crap. And recently, within the last two months, I went through these boxes just to make sure there wasn't some like rogue Mickey Mantle or something buried in them and they're – friends there was not but i did select a few baseball cards that i i pulled out and i was like oh yeah i want to keep this one and that one was one of them I, instantly you pull it out it's a flood of emotions like yes this is this is better than all the other baseball cards
2: <laughs> all right i am taking first baseman doing splits I like Mm. first baseman doing splits, and I like that because first basemen are supposed to be the least athletic people on the field, or at least among them. You don't expect them to be very mobile or flexible, and yet there they are doing something that I could never conceive of doing, and you don't even suspect it. You just see them hulking over there, not having much range, just sort of standing, and all they have to do is catch the ball. Then all of a sudden, they do this incredibly acrobatic thing that you never suspected that they were capable of. And I love it also because, A, how much does it even help, really? I mean, (laughs) what fraction of a millisecond are you gaining by doing the split? It just doesn't seem like it would ever make the difference in a call unless the umpire is just giving you the call because he appreciates the effort of you doing the split. Sometimes it backfires if you do the split a little too early, maybe, or the ball takes a weird hop or something, then you, once you commit to the split, you've kind of lost all your lateral mobility. You're just trying to get a little bit closer to the ball. And so there are times when it may actually hurt you, although it's still impressive to see. And I just really admire it because when I used to do the presidential fitness test, which I believe has been discontinued, which is merciful to all the kids today, but I assume that you all had to go through that. And parts of it were fine, but the sit and reach part was not part that I could do. I could do the sit, but I could not really reach. And so I really appreciate that ability in first baseman. And I don't really know exactly how they cultivate. That ability do they just have it can every baseball player just do a split can every professional athlete do that or do they work on it because they know they're going to be a first baseman and if they haven't been a first baseman most of their career and then they move over there do they have to do split training i don't even know the mechanics of that but i really appreciate it (laughs) i'm
1: so excited for you to get excited about evan white
2: (laughs) does he do splits
1: Yeah, the the first base, like, it's weird to be like, hey, let's be horny for a first base defense because it's first base defense. But then you watch Evan White play baseball and you're like, hey, I get it.
0: Yeah,
2: It's an
1: uncomfortable configuration of words, but I think you know what I'm trying to say.
2: (laughs) All right. Grant, you got to go in like 10 minutes, right? Do we want to just toss out whatever we had left? For our last pick, lightning round? Uh, I
0: I sort of have to go
2: like now. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sounds like your dog yeah. really wants you to go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this was fun. Thank you. Grant, I, I guess you can uh, I, you can just mute and I'll stop, I guess. Okay. I, I could say goodbye, Grant and Grant's dog. Thank you. We'll probably talk to you about the Giants sometime soon. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye. <laughs> All right. Anyone else want to mention any before we end? Can I do a
1: earn- oh. rattling off the list? Yeah. Can I do an yeah. earnest one? But I want to do the earnest one last. So everyone else should okay. go.
2: Okay. Jeff, you got anything?
3: I was going to say I like innings that end with outs at home plate because those are really exciting. But I think what I would have picked last is. The, the general umbrella term is managers, but specifically the fan understanding of managers because they're just this person that you know is really important and they're the face of your team and they wear the uniform, but you have absolutely no idea what they ever do, uh, except that you have very strong <laughs> opinions about them. So
2: I like uh-huh. that there's just that whole interaction. Huh. Have you gained a greater appreciation for like behind the scenes stuff that we don't know about on the outside? Or? Oh, I mean, of
3: course, but there's nothing that you would ever expect a fan to actually do grapple with because it's just not something that a fan would really care about. But you know, mm-hmm. managers are busy people. They have a real job. But when you're a fan, and it, I mean you see this on Twitter all the time. You think, oh fire the manager because you brought in the wrong lever or whatever. Like there's just as we've talked about so many times before, there's a lot more to it than just in-game tactics. But you just never see it. And so fans are fans see one percent of a job and they decide, fire this guy. We've lost six games in a row. Or mm-hmm. I don't know. Do fans ever say re-sign this guy? Do fans ever <laughs> lobby for re signing the manager? Or is it just one of those like third base coach things where
2: Yeah, if you win the World Series, I guess, yeah, bring that guy back. We like that guy. Sam, you have any?
4: Yeah, I was gonna draft the Houston Astros drafts of 1989, 90, and ninety one. Uh when <laughs> so back then there was not a limit on how many rounds a draft could go. They would like they would just go. You you would just go until teams started dropping out and then until there were no teams left and so most teams would take like you know 50 40 or 50 rounds and the first teams would start dropping out like in the mid 30s and for three years the astros as a strategy just decided that they were going to go way longer than everybody else since so they drafted 100 players and i don't <laughs> i don't know why i like that so much uh, i go back to it every couple of years and look at the players they drafted almost all of whom they didn't sign almost all of whom never got drafted anywhere else after almost all of whom never made the majors the astros in their entire 1990 draft when they drafted 99 players they ha- got negative six war from the first <laughs> <draft>. <laughs> in their first rounders. there's Like every time I do it, I think this is going to be interesting and it's not quite. But then I do see like a few things that are a little bit more interesting than I never noticed. Like the time that they drafted Daniel Pagan in the 87th round and then the next year, just to screw with him, they drafted him in the 95th round. (laughs) I don't know. I just uh, I think that the Astros sitting alone in a room naming names that may or may not have been real while nobody listened or cared (laughs) is like peak late round draft. And uh, and I I plan to go back to it a few more times.
2: And they didn't have more farm teams or anything. They just, they didn't have any place to put them.
4: They, they didn't just... sign any. I mean, they they really like they signed one of their final twenty five round picks that year. I don't even know what they were doing. I guess they were probably drafting follows. Maybe a lot of. Maybe junior college players. It's hard to tell. They did it year. I mean, they did it years and years. And so then, I, I, I always have had this vision of. I think that uh, Bob Watson was the GM who came after that. I have this vision of Bob Watson taking the job as the Astros GM after whoever it was during this period of the nineteen nineties. And like walking in and going, ah, oh, they were hoarders, and just like kicking over draft picks everywhere. Just like they, you know, like you've got these just like stacks and stacks of draft picks toppling over on a room. And that's the vision I have of the 1990 Astros in the draft. Just like <laughs> what you know, I like <laughs> newspaper, I got to save that.
3: If you look at 1991, so the Astros drafted 96 players, but if you look closely, the Dodgers that year. Drafted 94. They stuck around, and they were going one for one for one for, like, 15 rounds after every other team had finally dropped out. So the Do- Dodgers finally just called it quits after the 94th round, and that's when the Astros chose Daniel Pagan and then Brian Hudson. But this just it's a battle of attrition.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The last one I was going to take is something that we've discussed briefly on the podcast before, but the wildly exaggerated appraisals that baseball people used to have about what players were worth, how much value they added to teams, how much value they detracted just before war, before we knew what the range of an actual star player was. People evidently had no idea, and you could just name any number for what you thought a player was worth, and no one could really call you on it because there was no win value stat. No one could say, no, that is demonstrably wrong. And so I've been collecting examples of this. I'm up to five. I welcome any that anyone comes across. I think one of my favorites here is uh, Roy Cullenbine, who was a first baseman in the 30s and 40s. Not a great defender, evidently, but a good hitter. And there's this article from the year after Cullenbine retired. So he last played for the Tigers in 1947. And in March of 1948, there was an AP article where... Everyone with the Tigers just trashed him, just took turns, just trashing his defense. So the GM of the team at the time, Billy Evans, said for 15 years or so, three big hulks of men, Hank Greenberg, Rudy York, and Roy Cullenbein were our first basemen. They could hit well and drove in a lot of runs, but they weren't good fielders. Someone, I think it was Steve O'Neill, that was their manager at the time, estimated we lost at least 15 games last season because of Cullenbine's play around first. Roy is a fine hitter and a good outfielder, but he's no first baseman. Can you imagine how bad you'd have to be at first base to cost the team 15 games? And then it continues. So genial gray-haired manager O'Neal nodded assent. Genial O'Neal before he <laughs> resumes trashing Columbine. The rest of our infield should be much better because the players can throw the ball without worrying whether Columbine will come up with it. He interpolated, last year, the infielders would hesitate after coming up with a grounder trying to make sure they made only perfect throws. Even then, Roy didn't always get them. Then Evan says, that's right. (laughs) Even a fine third baseman like George Kell almost got the jitters from it. So they just could not say enough about how bad Roy Columbine was. He was a a four-win player, by the way, that year and a five-win player the year before that. So he was one of the best players on the team as they were saying that he was costing them minimum 15 games with his defense then uh, there's whitey herzog saying that a good third base coach can win 16 or 17 games a season for his club which sounds wildly inflated then i think you told me about this one sam maybe the the scout and dollar sign and the muscle Who says Andre Dawson's a better all-around player, but Moreno, Omar Moreno saves our ball club 50 doubles and 20 triples a year (laughs) that would go by most fielders. Which uh, I love because that one, is he's saying relative to average, just the average or most fielders even, he saves 50 doubles and 20 triples, which if you just take like the average linear weights value of doubles and triples, that's 75 runs on defense. And uh, Omar Moreno was never worth more than 14 runs on defense in a season, according to baseball reference. So that's when Ozzie Smith himself. Let's see. The quote is, I may not drive in 100 runs each year, but I can prevent 100 runs from scoring against us. And as great as Ozzy Smith was, he was not doing that unless he meant relative to just no one playing shortstop, which that that's probably fair. But compared to an average shortstop, uh, he was not quite that good. And then the last one is a, a tweet from the writer Phil Rogers from last June who said Steve Stone is right, talking up play of Ivan Rodriguez behind plate. I watched a lot of it from the time he was 19. An AL manager once told me he saved Texas one run per game. Hyperbole? Probably. But he's the best I've seen. Lots of people think Bench was better, but I doubt it. So that would be, you know, what, fifteen win catcher behind the plate, just defense alone. So that's kind of the range. People just thought, yeah, this guy was worth 15 wins. He was costing us 15 wins. Sure, these are teams that only won like 70 or 80 games or something, but one guy was uh, responsible for a very large portion of that. And I like that because it just goes to show, I think, that you really didn't have a, a great calibration or a sense of what things were worth before that was actually quantified. So please, if anyone comes across examples, send me more. Should I do Meg? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so do your, your I,
1: earnest one. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll do the two really silly ones first, or the little, short, short, short. I like it when fans misjudge foul balls, like, with enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. like really get in there and they really think it was a home run but no it was a foul ball i like that just because fans are we're all this is sort of related to what you were just talking about we're we're bad at judging things uh sometimes and uh like the strike zone i think fans are bad about uh sometimes they they get the foul ball thing wrong but i i really like their enthusiasm because humans are silly so i like that i like it when pitchers unlock something right like when they figure out they figure it out. I like it. It's a fun, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's inspiring. It's not the earnest one, but it is inspiring. And I really like it when a veteran is involved, you know, shows him a new grip. And then all yeah. of a sudden he can throw that great slider and you're like, ah, cool. Yep. We, we spend all this time and money on player development and we've gotten so much better at it. And sometimes you just really need like a grizzled veteran to be like, hey, move your finger this way. So I like that. But mm-hmm. here's the earnest one. I like the friends we've met along the way. And I'm going to specifically call out a thing, which is that Jeff carried around with him, probably not actually carried around with him. He mostly left it in his house and didn't throw it away, but had in his home, for over a year, a Ryan Stanek bottle opener that the Rays gave away as a giveaway because, you know, it's funny because the opener and I saw it on Twitter oh. and I was like, hey, Jeff, I want that thing. Will you get it for me? And he did. And then we didn't see each other because he lives in Portland and I live in Seattle and we don't have Appleman to bankroll trips to like hang out as pals anymore. And he remembered and brought it to winter meetings for me. And so I'm grateful for his friendship and for both of yours.
3: In mm-hmm. fairness, oh, okay. I had it sitting right next to that pair of socks that either Kylie or Eric had left in a hotel room in Las Vegas.
1: <laughs> that is true. I did end up delivering socks. That was weird.
3: <laughs> I think a, that is very nice,
4: Mike. Thank yeah. you. I, okay. I I think a bottle opener is the perfect giveaway even if you don't have the pun. Yeah. It's a great It's giveaway. great it's size. Terrific. Really useful. You probably It's not something that you want to buy. Uh, it is something that I, I don't know. I think that it would be a nice thing to keep in your house, and also uh, you you never know. Maybe you uh, well, I guess they probably open the bottles for you these days, and they probably don't. They probably aren't even glass, are they? You're probably not going to be yeah. able to buy a bottle at the park and open it. But
3: I don't know. In the old days, all right. Yeah. Two no problems: uh, the, the bottle opener was know. was large, and it had Brian Kenny's voice in it.
1: Yeah, but you have to be careful about pressing the button because they. Um, I will say the flaw in that giveaway was that the Rays did not have faith in their audience because uh, they explain what the opener is, like there's a little, <laughs> uh, little speaker on the background. They're like, in "The opener," and it's like, "No, no, have faith, have faith in your audience to to get the the reference."
2: All right, well, Jeff, we have missed you. We're glad you could join us. We're glad that you enjoy baseball development, and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. And please make the Rays do a mid plate appearance pitching change this year. I don't have that authority. Just, just drop a line. Just recommend it. Write a memo.
3: I believe that so, I uh, put it in Slack almost immediately after yeah. after we talked
2: last yet, year. So no one has done it yet. Huh. All right then. What does that tell you, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> no one's as bold and visionary as we are okay it's fun to spend time with you all and grant who's gone yes all right bye jeff have a nice season all right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. This was, I believe, the first time we had all of the co-hosts of Effectively Wild on one episode together with Grant. Grant is almost an honorary co-host. For those of you who've been listening a long time, you remember that this used to be a daily podcast. We used to end every week on a multiple of five on the episode number. We did that again today with five co-hosts. It's all lining up. So that was fun. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have not heard episodes 500 and 996, go check them out. The things we liked about baseball then. I assume we still like. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going. Josh Newman, King of Motor Driving, Harold Walker, Joseph Blumenthal, and Jeffrey Young. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and sam and meg via email at podcast at or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll be back early next week with the next episode in our season preview series which should so feature two nl east rivals the braves and the phillies talk to you then
3: So here's what I think about the Houston Astros.